Today's podcast is sponsored by David M. Hosmer Law Office, which is celebrating David's 30th year practicing law. You may not need a lawyer, but when you do, you need an excellent one. Contact him at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Welcome to Yankton's Yardbirds, a podcast presenting the World War II stories of Yankton's veterans. After 165 interviews and countless hours of preparation, it's time to share these stories. As of now, they'll be shared by podcast and later will be presented in print. If you have questions, free to contact me at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Please be advised that there is some offensive language within these interviews. When I'm speaking, I've added my language to more modern times. The Japanese desperately wanted to sink American carriers at Pearl Harbor, but they failed. The USS Enterprise and the USS Lexington, the only carrier station at Pearl, were away from port delivering fighter planes to Wake Island and Midway Atoll. They could have easily come into contact with the Japanese carriers steaming westward after their attack. In fact, the Japanese had other targets that day, one of which was the Midway Atoll. Two destroyers, explained Marine John Miniclair, shelled us from the western side of Sand Island. Somehow, one of the shells came right through the window of the power plant killed a couple of Marines. A young lieutenant, George Cannon, bled to death because he refused care. For his actions, he was bestowed with a Medal of Honor. According to Mindeclair, the Marines returned fire during the attack. Quote, their ships were so close because it was deep off the reef. They could actually see the Japanese flags on the ships. They had troops on it. The Marines fired machine guns. The guys in Sand Island were firing three-inch guns at them. Some sergeant was smart enough to barrel sight it because they were so close. They basically chased them out. We were on the other side of the island and didn't know about it until the next day, unquote. Miniclair also recalled, quote, Sometime that day, we got word that Pearl Harbor had been hit, and that's all. No details. Everybody reported to their positions. They didn't know what was going on. Senior NCOs were almost crying. See, their families were back at Hawaii, and they didn't know if they were alive or dead, unquote. In addition, 36 Japanese bombers attacked Wake Island. Again, John Miniclair. Wake only lasted about 18 to 20 days. It was just too far away for support. I knew several of the men there. Civilian planes flew routes from Midway to Guam. A Pan Am plane took off from Midway and was going to Wake. It was almost there when Wake was bombed. The pilot had enough sense to turn around and get the hell out of there. They came to Midway and from there went to the States. A couple of times, they tried to run raids with B-17s down the wake to help those guys out. When the B-17s came back, they're having a hard time navigating. The theory was we had to take our lights at night and turn them all straight up into the air, unquote. Dire rumors began to circulate around the Willard H. Holbrook on the 7th of December. Rumor was just that, but this time the rumors were more intense. Don Madrager said there was momentary confusion about where the convoy should go. Of course, at that time, neither the convoy nor the naval leadership in Washington, D.C. had any idea where the Japanese fleet was located. There was great concern that the convoy, 
which did not have a battleship escort other than one heavy cruiser, the Pensacola, might stumble upon the Japanese. As a result, the Army wanted the convoy to return to Hawaii. But General MacArthur, who's on the Philippines, still needed help there. The Pensacola convoy was ordered to proceed to the nearest friendly port and to await further orders. Shortly thereafter, according to Arnold Albrecht, there was a general announcement aboard ship that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. According to Cliff Hicks, most men were really surprised. Pearl Harbor looked pretty quiet when they saw it. Colonel Jensen repeated the message from Admiral Hart, quote, Japan has started hostilities. Govern yourselves accordingly, unquote. Several things immediately changed. All the ships in the convoy were now zigzagging. Zigzagging is a defense tactic designed to confuse enemy submarines. Spotting planes took off from the Pensacola, which began to circle the convoy at high speed. Soldiers acted as lookouts for enemy ships. There was no smoking after dusk. The smoking lamp is out. It was feared that a cigarette cherry could provide the enemy with a ship's location. No loud radios were permitted. Each officer was issued a 45 handgun and ammunition. Think of that. What good would that do? They also set up a few cannons on the deck of the boat. Each man wore a life belt in case the ship was struck and sunk. Another precaution taken by the captain was to issue an order to camouflage the ship. Quote, gallons of gray paint were in the hold. We did it in one day, unquote, said Cliff Hicks. Hicks was one of the men who helped. He used a shoe brush to apply paint. Don Modrager, who was proud to have walked the entire ship to get a good feel for it, was suspicious. Quote, where'd they get all that paint? Someone must have known something. Why else would the Navy have paint on a ship? The zigzagging meant their trip took double time and they ran short of food and water. Only two meals were served per day and water was only to be consumed. When not on duty, the men were to be down below. Hicks was in the third hold where it was very hot. They used canvas to channel air downward, which was pretty unsuccessful. When possible, he slept on the deck on a railing. Despite all these changes, because these men missed the attack at Pearl Harbor by a mere week in time, I refer to them as the lucky 147th. It would not be the first and only time that their collective luck was to hold. During every generation, so it seems, a moral clarion is issued in the form of a tragic event. The test is simply to ask someone, where were you at when you heard, where was JFK assassinated? The challenger erupted, or two planes crashed in the Twin Towers. Most everyone knows, and of course, for the greatest generation, those between 1901 and 1927, it's Pearl Harbor. Every person I've met in that generation recalled where he or she was located when told of the Japanese sneak attack. The morality was quite simple. America, a democracy, was good. While Japan, Italy, Germany, which were totalitarian governments, were bad. The attack was on Sunday, and Eugene Wiedenbach and Roman Arns had both just walked out of church. The Copes had just returned home from church. Someone called Jim Cope's father and said, Turn on the radio! Many families had the radio on, including Bernie Klein, Al Sole, Ed Stiebrill, Freeland Owney, and Bill Branson. Bob Titus was listening at a friend's house. Ken Hagen was listening to WGN out of Chicago. The Chicago Bears rallied to win 34 to 24. Gene Alexander was listening to his car radio. Some men were at work. Merlin Pugh was at the St. Charles Bar, tapping a keg. Sally Bart was in Chicago, performing housework. Harriet Randall was working at the Meckling grocery store. Ross Wes was on the farm butchering a hog. Some men were actually eating Sunday dinner. Both Orvin Oyen and Ed Johnson were visiting with family. 
Ed's family gathered to say goodbye to Ken Erickson, his brother-in-law who was shipping out. Bill Kerr was on the way to his favorite aunt's home for Sunday dinner. Carl Johnson was at a dance at the Indian School in Springfield when he heard. Chuck Walburn was a gathering at homing pigeon owners. Arlen Westergaard was visiting his cousin's home. He came in for lunch and saw his father crying. After Jim Bauer and his father wired a house for the REA, they stopped at his aunt's house in Mission Hill. She asked, where's Pearl Harbor? No one knew. She continued, the Japanese bombed it this morning. Of course, what all this means is that the day before and up to the bombing, life was just going on like any other ordinary day. American citizens as a whole were enraged, which overcame almost all isolationist sentiments. According to the American movie Tora Tora Tora, Japanese General Aishiruku Yamamoto, who commanded the Japanese Navy at Pearl Harbor, is quoted as saying, I fear all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with terrible resolve. The quote is Hollywood fiction, but the sentiment is certainly correct. Only one member of Congress voted against President Roosevelt's request for a congressional declaration of war. As of the 8th of December, the military changed too. The Dobbins wooden deck, amazingly, was intact. Werner laughed as he recalled that deck. Quote, you had to serve three months on deck as a seaman. Every morning was wholly stoning the deck, which is a fire brick at the end of a broom handle pushed back and forth across the deck through sand and water. You had to go back and forth 20 times across each board. That deck was as white as your sheets, he said. On the 8th, the men painted everything gray, including that deck. Without a doubt, the attack on Pearl Harbor surprised many Americans. Although some important facts were discovered by some politicians and the military immediately prior to the attack, including the American radar at 7.02 a.m. picking up the Japanese planes on the way to Pearl Harbor and the USS Ward sinking a Japanese submarine near the mouth of the harbor, there was insufficient unified command designed to consider the information, to connect the dots, and then to promptly reply. It's true that Pearl had been an alert and taken off alert, according to Clem, which was unfortunate. Werner was grimly serious when he said, everyone thought we got sold out in Washington because the readiness status was dropped on the 1st of December. As a display of their disgust, many sailors after December 7th did not salute officers. Even if Pearl Harbor had been on high alert, the outcome would have been the same, a war. Perhaps fewer men would have died at Pearl Harbor. Nevertheless, there were some people who saw a conspiracy by American leadership who ignored crucial information about the attack to draw America into war. For that reason, the gray paint needs an explanation. Cans of paint appeared in the hold of the Willard A. Holbrook and the Dobbin on the 7th and 8th of December. The best answer is the easiest answer. It was there because there was a fear that the Japanese might attack the ships near the Philippines, where the Willard A. Holbrook was headed. Eugene Dwyer went in another direction. There was, quote, dereliction of duty, unquote. There were signs of a possible war, and the military was clearly unprepared. He said, we pretty much knew that Japan was expanding. I don't think anybody thought they had the ability to have an air raid over Hawaii. They suspected an attack would be in the Philippines. That was the whole planning. It's true the Navy was unprepared. Most of the ships in the harbor only had target ammunition. The Dobbin had been assigned 50 caliber machine guns, but they were still in the cases in the hold. The next few episodes will introduce us to the Battle of the Philippines. They're amazing and horrific stories to be told from men such as Walter Strucka and Warren Jorgensen. You'll also meet Dr. Nick Sawi, who was just a boy in the Philippines when the Japanese invaded.
If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of Yankton's Yardbirds, please contact David Hosmer at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. All content for this podcast was created by David Hosmer, and all production was performed by Eric Berenger. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yankton's Yardbirds. <laughs>